Tom's flying school. Within six months, Tom had to hire a secretary. He did not have a natural head for figures or schedules, but had found an activity he loved so much that his natural charisma, already strong, flowed even faster and deeper. He loved to fly. He had graduated from gliders quite quickly. He received his pilot's license within two months of returning from Germany. Three months after that, he was a certified instructor. He was self-financed. In January of 1934, he bought a new Beechcraft Staggerwing biplane. He advertised around town on lampposts and flew a sign behind his airplane over horse races, upper-class picnics, and garden parties, hoping to snag young men with bravado and trust funds. The sign read, First flight free. Fly the wild skies. Hendon. 4576. And they came. They came, at first out of curiosity, to say that they had been up in an aeroplane. But Tom knew from his days as an athlete how important the element of dash was in presentation. So he let his hair grow longer, bought a number of white silk scarves, two creaky leather bomber jackets, and let his stubble grow artfully. He allowed a little more Oxford into his accent and cultivated a fairly dashing demeanour of what was swatting at school compared to buzzing around above the clouds? Envy and charisma are two crucial ingredients in early entrepreneurial sales. Tom had natural charm and could evoke great envy. One other ingredient also helped to bring great early success his way, and that was his sense of doom. Death is the ultimate liberator. That is one of life's deepest secrets. Tom genuinely believed that he had, and the civilized world had, only about five more years to live. He had come to this conclusion, or rather his instincts gave him this time frame, but he found that he was not alone in this. He read in the Times that the Defense Requirements Committee felt the same way. They said that Germany was England's eventual enemy, and that Germany would probably be ready for war in about five years. Tom had burst free of many of his early limitations. He did not fear borrowing money. He did not fear bullying people who did not pay. He did not care if he lost his temper with careless students. He did not have any patience for the pettiness of others. He saw them all, consumed in fire, with all the grandeur or smallness of their lives burning up with them. Why not be grand, since we shall soon all not be? He did, on occasion, ask himself why he chose to become a flight instructor when he knew that airstrips would be the first ground targets in the coming war. He had vague fantasies about stealing one of the new monoplane fighters, the Supermarine Type 300, say, and laying waste to half a dozen bombers before being brought down by their fighter escorts or rear gunners. He also thought that it might turn out to be possible to stop the bombers, but couldn't imagine how. There would only be about 20 minutes from first visual sighting to the bomb bay's opening, which would never be enough for pilots to scramble, find them, and shoot them down. The bombers could be at any height and would be protected by swarms of fighters. And even if they could be found, and 50 planes shot down before the rest found their target, an almost unimaginable number since your own plane had to turn around, that would likely be less than a third of the bombers. 
and those that were shot down would dump their bombs as well as they fell, causing God knows what carnage below. Given these facts, Tom could not help but think that Reginald was a complete fool for bringing new life into such a world. Of course, Reginald probably thought that in his exalted position as undersecretary to the German ambassador, he would be able to single-handedly prevent war. But Tom knew that that was, to use a Reginald-ism, all nonsense. His children would likely die in the conflagration. Tom was not, by nature, a vengeful person, but all he could do was hope to be there if and when it all came to pass. No, it was not to save England that Tom was training pilots. Tom trained pilots because he loved to fly, and this allowed him to fly more. He also found that he loved to teach, so that was all right. And really, why not give others some pleasure in the short time they had left? Tom sometimes felt, staring at the rows of unlined faces in his little clapboard classroom, that he was like a doctor who could not save his patients, but could give them some wonderful morphine vistas. His students were, by and large, a genuine and rather surprising pleasure. Tom had initially started his school to be able to fund his flying, but quickly found that his pleasure in flying was only matched by his pleasure at teaching. He had no problem with discipline, because he had no illusions of immortality. What is the curled lip of an arrogant student compared to the fire of the whole world? He threw out the rude, because life was too short to be spent jousting with vanity. He threw out the incompetent, because both he and they should find more productive uses for their time. He threw out the impulsive, because all of his remaining days were precious, and he did not want to shorten their length by a bad crash, or their quality by a not-so-bad crash. Prang was the pilot's slang for crash. So those who remained tended to be the best. And Tom found, as any teacher does, that the term the best has many, many meanings. He loved the students with natural ability. He had been one himself, and he loved what they were capable of, seemingly without effort. He loved them, and he also hated them, because natural ability has an uncanny tendency to waste its powers through sheer vanity. Those who were naturally good thought that their gifts allowed them to float past the mundanities of navigation, fuel calculations, instrument calibration, and visual inspections. They thought that the capacity to perform a perfect Immelman the first time would save them if they ran out of fuel over the sea or got lost in a fog. Talent is the icing. Craftsmanship is the cake, he said over and over. You can have a perfectly good cake without icing, but icing without a cake is always useless. He threw out the brilliant but lazy students because watching talent engineer its own demise was just too damn painful, too much like Reginald. He loved the students, who had little natural ability, but who worked like coolies at their craft. They weren't the barnstormers. They would never fly in formation. They knew that, and Tom knew that. But they would deliver medicines to Red Hat Alberta on time and unbroken. They would fly good grids to find lost ships. They would land passengers without spilling their tea. They were the backbone of the airplane industry, and Tom loved them. He also loved the indecisive students, but not for very long. Indecision occupied a rather 
curious position in Tom's universe. He had spent more than two years lounging in a room before being introduced to flying utterly by accident. He knew the value of refusing to decide. And on at least one occasion, a student arrived at his aerodrome utterly bashful and then graduated at the top of his class. However, sometimes students were indecisive just because they had no talent. They had to be ditched and fast. However, and this happened in August of 1934, the most interesting event in the first year of Tom's flight school was when he lost almost all of his habitual pronouns. He had wondered about the possibility of female pilots. They were not an unknown breed, but were often considered rather abrasive. They usually seemed to come up from the sticks with chips on their shoulders and all too much to prove. Jacqueline was rather regal, and Tom was rather suspicious. He had never warmed to women who sought out concentrations of young men. They always seemed to be preening or flirting or provoking dissension in the ranks. They were vain, insipid, and distracting. Jacqueline arrived early one morning before all of the others while Tom was sitting behind his desk marking some navigation exams. The flight school was a small hut with eight chairs. The wind, which came through the cracks in the boards, was largely blocked by the local maps covered by concentric circles. The chairs were uncomfortable. Tom had removed the plusher ones because they promoted inattention. The little blackboard squeaked abominably, and a large flight roster blocked most of the little window. Tom had experimented with doing the place up a little, but found that improving the decor tended to have the wrong effect on his students. He quickly realized why this was so. Dashing just seemed to mesh well with uncomfortable. These men wanted a frontier experience. So be it. Having discovered something he loved, Tom had also discovered the joys of dawn. There was a reason to get up early. He loved the grey light, the silence, the sense of alert preparation in the face of a slumbering world. He loved walking across the dark, silent aerodrome, his tea steaming in a chipped mug. He loved watching the stars disappear. He loved winning respect by being up early. He liked the implicit virtue of early light. He also loved dawn because it was a crying time. Probably two dawns out of seven, Tom cried. He was so used to crying by now that he did not find it alarming. He had been caught at it by a few early students and had looked up at them unapologetically, knowing full well that it could only add to his mystical bravado. I say, Skipper was crying like a baby this morning. Clearly a brave chap. Wonder what's up. It was not so much that they found him crying that was odd, but that he was not embarrassed by it. But of course, given his forebodings, tears mattered not at all. In the face of a great fire, what did a little salt mean? At about 5.30 a.m., Tom was weeping as he marked the tests. It was quite an efficient operation. He marked, turned the page, wiped his eyes. Occasionally, his tongue would escape his lips, licking to one side or another, enjoying the scrape of stubble and lick of salt. He heard the crunch of light steps outside the shack. He pinched his nose, sniffed, and looked up. 
The door opened, and a young woman stood before him. She was of medium height, with long brown hair, light blue eyes, wide cheekbones, and thick lips. She seemed rather exasperated. "'You are Thomas Spencer?' she asked, jabbing out her hand. "'I am,' he said, rising. He saw her notice his tears. That stalled her for a moment, which he enjoyed for some reason. "'Jacqueline Herrick, you might, if you like, put a sign up in the office saying that you are in this shack when you are not there.' I looked in the office, the hangar, and all around the aeroplanes. That is an excellent idea, smiled Tom. Jacqueline seemed startled, but recovered quickly. She reached into her purse, pulled out a handkerchief, and extended it to him. Thank you, said Tom, dabbing at his eyes. He offered it back, but she shook her head rapidly. Now this is going to have to be faster than I had intended, because I spent so much time wandering about. I want to be a pilot, but no one will train me. I don't know why. I have the vote, and vote conservative, but there it is. I want to become a pilot because I love flying, or rather I think I will love flying. So far, all I have had the chance to love is being flown around by others. I shan't say men, though that is in fact the case, because I don't want to sound divisive. I am a suffragette, but I am not interested in temperance. They say you are very good. Why not come to you first, then? Good question. I have no answer. But I want to learn how to fly. I will do my hair up like this. She put her purse on Tom's desk and began pinning up her hair. Or wear caps, not hats, caps. I do not flirt because I am not interested in marriage. I will not ask you such personal questions. I am not looking to land a pilot. We should have more to offer the skies than offering drinks, don't you think? Jacqueline paused. Tom's eyes refocused almost painfully. Now she looked like a man. She said, that's all. That's fine, he said. My mother is one of the most intelligent people I know. Jacqueline frowned. She was obviously not a person on a first-name basis with good news. I don't know what you mean by that's fine. That's fine that you have a noble and silly ambition. That's fine you're in. Tom held up a hand, hoping that it wouldn't seem patriarchal. You're in. She paused, then nodded tightly, then scowled. In now or in a year when you have space? Now I have space. In because I'm a young woman? No, don't answer that. All the women know you're a bachelor. It doesn't matter. I'll take it. How much? she asked, grabbing her purse and opening it. You get a free flight first. I know. I've seen you flying past your aeroplane anyway. I don't want it. Tom shrugged, suppressing a smile. All right. And I would like to sit at the back. I'm not trying to make demands. I am vulnerable through my hair. I like to see people. And thank you. For what? For letting me fly. I'm not letting you fly. Teaching me then. There's no need to thank me, said Tom, rising to shake her hand again. I'm a businessman. Money is money. How much? Six pounds for the course, another one for the license. Jacqueline smiled. She whistled, then looked around and smiled. You know, she said, leaning forward slightly, if I were a typical woman, I'd say that it might be worth applying some of your vast profits to improving your decor. Then she grinned. But I shan't, because I am going to be a pilot. Jacqueline was an able student. She had natural ability, which was good, but she also was a very hard worker, which was even better. Tom could tell that she was serious and committed and was staying up nights going over her textbooks. She also had great conflict management skills. He had been curious as to how she would handle the natural jabs of the young men in the class. Women, he had noticed when in traditionally male situations, were usually cattle prodded into two general areas, flirt or matriarch. Jacqueline refused to be cornered into either camp. She never flirted, never tossed her hair or smiled toothily. But she also never became brittle. 
disapproving and bossy. She never put the men down for their sallies, and so they began to become awkward, then silent. Finally, they just accepted her as a person, which Tom admired very much. He was also terrified of her. Jacqueline seemed like an iceberg, and not because she was cold. Actually, she had a gusty, tomboy warmth. She had a wide grin, a hearty manner, and evoked sort of shoulder-punching camaraderie. She would be a good woman to farm with, thought Tom. No, she seemed like an iceberg because she was immovable. Most of her was hidden, and she was perilous to unstable craft. She evoked no sexual attraction, which was very attractive to Tom. She had a nice figure somewhere beneath her anorak and heavy trousers. Her hair was lustrous, slightly wavy, quite long. Her skin was clear, her eyes bright. The other boys in the class never teased her. They had great respect for her ability. Jacqueline was also unusual in that she never pressed issues of feminine equality. She had the most powerful prow of egalitarianism. She just did not understand that women were supposed to be the weaker sex. She was very practical. When she needed something heavy lifted, she asked a man. She did not pretend physical equality. Neither did she pretend that her weakness was a virtue. She asked men for favors in the same way that a man might ask a taller man to fix a ceiling fan. She received the occasional sexist comment, but just did not understand it. Tom could not help but smile when he saw this. A man would say something careless, and she would focus her eyes on him, frown, and ask him to repeat his comment. If he did, she would prove that it was illogical. One such rally occurred when a man named Fred mentioned something foolish about her inability to wrestle a chalk free of the wheels of an airplane. Jacqueline stood up and said, I am not as strong as a man. Fred said, That's right. So I am dependent on men for strength. That makes me inferior? In a way, yes. So if someone is dependent on someone else for something, then that person is inferior. Fred paused, probing the way ahead. Yeah. She smiled. Would you say that life is more important than strength? Huh? Is it more important to be alive or to be strong? Both. You can't have both. Alive. Would you say that there is a man alive who was not born of woman? No. Thus men are dependent on women for life. Yeah. Thus, since life is more important than strength, then men are more dependent on women than women are on men. But, but, <laughs> never mind, she laughed. Just pull this chalk away and I'll let you live. Afterwards, Tom walked over to her. She was on a ladder checking the oil in an engine. Actually, that was a cheat. She smiled, straightening. Oh dear, my teacher is accusing me of cheating. Women are dependent on men for life. There is no woman alive who was not conceived due to a man. That's true, she retorted. But if Fred had been intelligent enough to observe that, he never would have said something so foolish. Tom grinned, nodding. She smiled again, then turned back to her motor. All too soon she began to worm her way into his consciousness while he was away from the aerodrome. Tom lived a Spartan existence. He liked to fly. He did not like to drink or dance. He did not oppose those things, but life was too short to pursue anything less than his greatest passion. He still read a great deal, but his reading was different now. 
Before, he had read with the intention of changing the world in some manner that he sort of assumed would present itself in due course. But there was, or would soon enough be, not enough of the world left to rescue. He wrote a number of personal essays about his experiences in Germany and sent them off to various magazines. But the English mood was one of bottomless appeasement and anti-rearmament, and they did not get published. He thought of trying to spend more time with Reginald, perhaps to get him to change his mind, or at least see the possibility of danger. But Reginald was hostile to Tom's ideas. He had rejected Tom's theories in their Oxford years because they were too abstract. He now rejected Tom's beliefs about Germany because they were too concrete. Clearly this was a maze without exits. Also there was the matter of Wendy. Tom had gone to see Reginald and Wendy three times that year already. Their material fortunes had undergone considerable improvement. The birth of their first child had, as is so often the case, thawed relations with Wendy's parents. The money spigot had creaked open, and they now had a much smarter flat near Whitehall and access to a family estate southwest of London, near Hampshire. Tom would fly the half-hour to see them, landing in a field near the house. Wendy would often come running out, coming up to the plane just as he was taxiing to a stop, carrying Jocelyn, holding her up. "'She is so happy to see you!' Wendy would pant, thrusting the infant into Tom's arms. "'I've never seen her take to anyone that way. Certainly not—' Wendy had an ability to start sentences with a clear direction, and then stop them, thrusting the moral responsibility of finishing them onto the listener. Tom knew, as he walked towards the country house with Wendy, that the end of that particular sentence was— Certainly not her father. Wendy's family was in the terminal stages of dissolution. Both her parents drank constantly, not in great amounts, but enough to be alcoholic ghosts just beyond the reach of mortal man. Tom, truth be told, had a great deal of pity for Wendy. She had very little sense of herself. She had become a bit of a babbler since the birth of her daughter, and her words possessed a strange insistence that was hard to listen to. She also jumped around in her topics in a most confusing way, and whenever Tom would try to speak, her voice would crest and another topic would burst up through her. She really needs to talk, Tom would think, and found himself unconsciously slowing down his breathing, either to try to slow her down through osmosis or give her more Oxygen, he could never quite tell. Tom fell completely in love with Jocelyn. He had never really imagined that infants had such strong personalities. But little Jocelyn was brute will embodied. She defended her own interests with an elemental passion which surprised Tom. God forbid that any sweet treats should be taken from her. Tom had tried to do that once when she was given a homemade chocolate Easter egg that if consumed entire, would have probably produced instant diabetes. Jocelyn's face was a horizontal half-moon of chocolate and flesh, and when Tom tried to take the mashed clump of Easter egg from her tight fist, she refused to open it. She kept her both fists moving, and tried hitting him with her other hand, at the same time as appearing to summon the protective ghosts of ancestors past with a terrifying howl. This much Tom had expected what did surprise him as he tugged in admiration at her willpower was how intimate the interaction was. 
Jocelyn stared straight into his eyes, her mouth twisted in a snarl, fighting grimly for her prize. And Tom felt an unearthly closeness with her. To be completely opposed and yet still completely intimate was a strange shock to his entire emotional apparatus. It was even more shocking that when he had finally gotten the chocolate away from her, cleaned her face and hands, and was feeding her some milk-soaked bread, Jocelyn reached with her left hand into her mouth, extracted some half-chewed pulp, and held it out to Tom. He felt very sad as he looked at her little dripping fist. He leaned his head forward. She extended her hand some more. Then he closed his lips over her fist, and she opened it, giving him her bread. Tom's brows had contracted, and he had wept. To be opposed and close, and then to share directly afterwards, was some kind of essential aspect of relating that he had never experienced with his own family. He felt connected with Jocelyn, and also felt that by being close to her, he was, in some manner, coming closer to his own heart. Of course, Jocelyn would likely be drowned in flames before she made it to school, and that gave Tom great pain. But he was convinced of the need to feel deeply before the end came. He would not allow the Germans to rob him of his love for his niece. He had been trained by Ruth to respond to female depression, and so found himself very susceptible to Wendy. He felt a terrible temptation to transfer some of his own inner riches to her, to her desolate soul, but could never imagine how to do it. All he could do was listen as she cradled and tucked and fussed over her daughter. When we first brought Jocelyn home, Reginald was sitting with some work friends on the sofa, and I asked him, to get her another blanket, because that old flat was always so gosh darn cold. And he looked up at me as if I were still that same malingering witch that he imagined I was all the way through my pregnancy. And he said, in a minute, dear. And that was when I knew how it was going to be. And I thought I would be in despair, but I'm not. And now he's in the city a lot. I stay up here sometimes during the week because Jocelyn keeps him up. And his work is important. But I don't know how well they have attached, you know. He holds her strangely. He does and says everything right. He can even change her nappy, thank heavens. But I think that I have seen mechanics work on a car with more love and affection. It's like he's here, but he's not here. Except when I do something to displease him. Then I get his attention. Oh, yes. Then the world gets his whole attention. Then it's nothing but Reginald. And I know that you have to make compromises. <laughs> do, do excuse me, it's just the hormones. Of course, that's what my mother says. The first year is all about adjustment. So I do... He comes home, and he's been dealing with people all day, and he needs some time to settle, and I give that to him. That was hard at the beginning. I was with this one all day and needed to be with him, talk to him. He needed silence and solitude, but all right, so now I give him that. All well and good. But sometimes it stretches on and on, an hour, sometimes more, or I come in to talk to him, and he's fallen asleep. So where is his compromise? Oh, thanks. Wendy would say, dabbing her eyes with Tom's handkerchief. I mean, it should be a two-way street. Because, she would whisper her eyes wide, leaning forward in that dramatic manner Tom had so disliked in his own mother. I have seen what it did to my own mother to compromise. 
When we were younger, my father would be ready to go out, and my mother would be rushing about trying to get us all ready, and herself. She hated leaving it to the maids. They never did it right. And he would be by the door, snorting and checking his watch, and my mother would be in a frenzy, so stressed her hair would come down while he's just standing there. And then he would be silent all the way to wherever we were going, and my mother would have to babble and make jokes and compliment him to warm him up. So much work! This just got worse and worse. So what happened? Did he compromise? No! If we were going on a day trip, she would get up before dawn and wake us up. And we would all dress in the dark, in silence, like we, like we were making a jailbreak. And then we would be presented to my father, lined up in front of the door, and the day would go smoothly. That's not what I want. I've seen what happens. He gets everything. She gets nothing. And I can see it happening to myself. I am sanding myself down, whittling at everything that sticks out. Everything that annoys him about me must go. If I bother him, it's because I am bothersome. If he bothers me, it's because I am petty. What is the use? Why would he marry me if he just wanted me to change? Tom would try to intervene, but Wendy would rush on. I can't understand what makes him tick. He is an enigma to me. He might as well be speaking in Arabic. I try. I ask him, why do you do this? What were you thinking about just before you did that? He just gets annoyed, Tom. I think that everything I'm doing is rubbing him the wrong way. I think that I know that I cannot make any demands on him because he will just go out or stay in London or just get angry. I'm turning into water, just molding myself around him. But he keeps changing what he wants. What was good yesterday is verboten today. Feels that way. Perhaps that's not true. That's probably too harsh. But that's, but that's how it feels sometimes. And everyone, even your parents, just look at me and say that I have to find a way to make him happy. But shouldn't he also be finding a way to make me happy? Shouldn't he? But he's not happy himself. I try to make him happy, but it can't all be so one way. And so it would go on and on, and Tom would get dizzy and feel very young and recall his mother. At one point, trying to recall that he was now an adult with his own job, he held up his hand. Wendy stopped. Immediately, a frightened and compliant look coming into her eyes. It was a little painful to watch, like seeing a rider yank a white-eyed horse to a stop by hauling back savagely on the reins. But Wendy, Tom said, you have to stop manipulating him. She frowned, a vaguely irritated look coming into her eyes. What? How am I manipulating him? Well, you're trying to control his temper. What? Something that Tom had noticed about Wendy was that she always became rude whenever she was defensive. She said, what, instead of pardon? You're accepting this principle, he said slowly, that you are responsible for Reginald's temper. That if he gets angry, you have to do something to prevent his anger or assuage it once it's underway. But that's manipulative on your part. How, she asked, a tear escaping from one eye without her seeming to notice. If my wife doesn't want to sleep with me, but I harangue and bully and nag her into it, is that being manipulative? Yes. Why? You're not letting her make her own... She stopped suddenly, her face freezing. Make her own choice, said Tom, feeling damn good to be able to finish one of her sentences out loud for a change. So you see, you're not letting Reginald be angry. Wendy shivered. Oh, I don't think I'd like that very much. Letting him be angry? Yes, not good, not good at all. Why? He's a shouter. Has has he ever hit you? Oh, no, 
No, it's it's never come to that. Do you, do you think it would? If you didn't appease him? I really don't want to find that out. But you can't live like that, whispered Tom, and the intensity of his voice seemed to draw another tear from her eye. But I can. I do. It's not really living. Of course it is! She suddenly hissed her voice, scraping the air like nails on a blackboard. I have a child! I'm sorry, said Tom, holding up his hands as Jocelyn burst into a grievous wail. You just live for yourself, cried Wendy, her eyes wandering the room. And now you've upset Jocelyn! I'm sorry, repeated Tom, the blood draining from his face. Let me take her. No, thank you, said Wendy, rising and patting Jocelyn's bottom too quickly, her long legs striding the room like manic scissors. We don't have to talk about this, of course, said Tom. No, 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 I think not. Your family, your whole family is most, most unsympathetic. I talk about some challenges in my marriage, and you seem to indicate that I am some sort of a political prisoner and manipulative to boot. No, I don't think that that is very helpful at all, thank you very much. And now Jocelyn needs her nap, so I think it's high time you left. Tom stood up fear and regret at war in his heart. He apologized. Once more, she did not seem to hear. He left the room and was walking out to his plane when he suddenly got very angry, more angry than he could remember feeling in his adult life. He turned around and marched back to the house. Wendy was upstairs putting Jocelyn to bed. He watched her from the doorway. Her back was to him as she leant over the crib. I know you're there, Tom, she said, but our conversation is over. Wendy, he said with the quiet certainty of just anger, you turned the tables on me just there, and I think that is wrong. You talk about how terrible it is that my brother does not let you be yourself, but when I shared my thoughts with you, you jumped up enraged and told me to leave. And... She asked. He could tell that she was finished with her daughter, but still would not turn around. And I think that that is very hypocritical. You can't say that it hurts you when Reginald does it, then turn around and do it to me. So, I am a hypocrite now as well? She asked, her voice even and flat. I cannot carry on this conversation with you while trying to put my daughter to sleep. And I think that we shall certainly say things which we cannot undo. So once more, I suggest that you leave. Tom stood in the doorway of the bedroom. He felt anger, no, rage, coursing through his system. It was almost unbearable. He felt that Wendy was taunting him with her turned back. He felt that at the moment she could watch him die without batting an eye. He said nothing. Eventually, and it was a long, long time, she put her hand on her lower back, straightened and turned around. Her face was empty, her eyes cold. "'You shall push this beyond repair, Tom,' she said. "'I do want to help,' he replied. "'No, you want to hurt your brother.' He opened his mouth, then closed it again. "'If you can destroy his marriage, so much the better for the flyboy bachelor.' But we are not made of such frail stuff. It would take more than you to break us apart. He said nothing, continuing to hold her gaze. Yes, she inquired archly. Nothing, 
"'I'm sure that all this staring is having a great effect in your mind, Tom,' she said wearily, passing a hand in front of her eyes. "'But really, you just look idiotic, like a stunned rat.' Still nothing. A tension rose in the room. Tom suddenly knew that Jocelyn was staring up at the ceiling from her crib, fully aware that something about her future was being determined. "'Oh, this is quite enough,' snapped Wendy. She walked up to Tom. He did not move from the doorway. She reached up and pushed against his chest. He stepped aside. She walked past him and down the stairs. He took a deep breath, glanced at the silent crib, and then followed Wendy into the kitchen. He knew that she was pleased that he had followed her, but also knew that she was pleased for the wrong reasons. Pleased because it was a melodramatic way to kill the afternoon, and because she would enjoy watching his twisted face shouting at her impervious defences. Acceptance is not a virtue in the modern world, he said, and certainly not in my family. Not in yours either, I think. We are all managing each other all the time. We like, we praise. We dislike, we condemn. And that's all right for the big things. I condemn the Nazis. But little things, how much sugar is in our tea? Who took the last biscuit? A fingerprint on glass? It's all so foolish. We should enjoy each other while we can. We shall not live forever. She snorted to underline the obviousness of his thought, but he continued nonetheless. I am the only other person in the world who knows what it's like to live with Reginald. That should be useful to you. I think that my brother has a terrible temper and that he is an expert in getting other people to think that it is their fault if he is angry. It is not your job to manage his emotions. He has to experience for himself how angry he is. No one knows why it is. It is the great family mystery. We have given up trying to find the cause just as we have given up trying to solve it. Look at how my mother interacts with him. Even after all this time, she's still handling explosives. No one confronts my brother because he can kill people dead in an instant in his own mind. Shut up, whispered Wendy. She did not move. You cannot have a relationship with him if you comply with all his demands. That's just appeasement. It's not the same as being related. That requires mutual respect and negotiation. And you will not change. You cannot change who you are, Wendy. The only thing you can do is disown yourself. We cannot become different. We can only become less. Tom's voice was thick with passion. Wendy sniffed. She was curled up in a wooden chair as if he were lashing her. A tear dropped onto the kitchen floor. So he will not change either, she said in a mixture of defiance and despair. He will, if he experiences that he is really, really angry. But you are shielding him from that because you take the blame yourself. Why? Oh, you know why, she spat. Her shoulders shook, he could not tell, whether from tension or tiny sobs. Why? How successful have you been? Tom paused. She was quite right. And I cannot leave him. There was no indication of it before, but I have made my bed. Why keep pointing out that I am fucked up? What's the goddamn point? It doesn't help. 
Tom paused. Why am I pursuing this so hard? Then the answer came to him. We both love Jocelyn, he said. Wendy's back stopped shaking. She was eerily still. My brother is speaking for all of us in the world. If you appease him, how will he deal with Hitler? Oh, God! She cried, raising her face, her eyes pure poison. You think that by compromising with him I am causing a war? A ripple went through her frame. She smiled suddenly and the poison left her eyes. It was replaced by pity, and Tom knew that his cause was lost. Pity is the greatest defense of all. Tom, you really are too much. I just believe that you have overplayed your hand. You had a good cause up until then. I was really falling for it, the great raging husband. But to think that I have some central effect on foreign policy if I try to be a little less irritating to my husband, well, that is all just nonsense. She uncurled her legs and stood up smoothly. Please, let us kiss and make up and talk of this no more. She laughed. It does you no credit to advance such foolish arguments, and it does me even less to listen to them. Tom did not believe in psychic phenomenon. He did not believe that infants understand words. He did not believe that Jocelyn had any idea what was happening below her. Nonetheless, he felt a sick chill in his stomach when Jocelyn began crying upstairs, as if she could see beyond the ceiling to the skies above, to a doom descending upon her fragile form. Tom flew back to Hendon with a sunken heart. He smiled sadly as he buzzed through the great blue, imagining that his fuel needle should be swinging visibly so great was the load of the plane. It's like dragging a damn anchor, he thought. After landing, he decided to go and sit in the shack for a little while to let his thoughts wander and his soul settle. Jacqueline was in there. Hello, Teach, she said, glancing up from a textbook. No class today. I checked the schedule. He smiled thinly. You look just about all done in, she said, placing her thumb along the spine and closing the book. What's up? I just... I went to go and visit my brother. She said nothing. She did not invite more details. She did not indicate that more details would be unwelcome. That made Tom very emotional. Really, he said, it's not you can talk if you want. You cannot talk if you want. She smiled. All that I ask is that you don't dither. He smiled back, then took his chair out from behind his desk and placed it in front of her. He leaned on the wood of her little desk, his hands on his face, his cheeks riding up on his palms in little folds. I feel less than dashing, he said. Jacqueline smiled. It's always a shame when such a well-cultivated garden goes to weed. Tom felt that she wanted to touch him. He wanted her to as well, but couldn't imagine how that might come about. Instead, he said, I, I think that there will be a war. Don't be like Wendy. Finish your sentences. I think that my brother and sister-in-law are very unhappy. She nodded slowly. That's probable. Hmm? Well, how many happy marriages do you know? Not, not too many. Statistically, it's a terrible risk. Well, they seem to have rolled snake eyes. They have children? Tom nodded. One bad. What's the matter? He's angry. She 
pacifiers. It's so... Tom's hands fell from his face, and his fingers closed over bare air. So clogged. I can't tell which way is up when I listen to her. It's like a spiral with no exit. Other people's unhappiness, she murmured. What? Sorry. Pardon? She brushed her hair back from her forehead. Well, it's the great mystery of life, the great problem. Other people are unhappy, people we care about. We know how to help them. They don't want to be helped. Right. What do you do? Me? Jacqueline smiled gently. Everyone asks the question. No one likes the answer. Tell me, what do I do with people like that? Yes. I can't answer that question, she replied. Tom's face fell. So I cannot answer that question because I don't have anyone left in my life who is like that. There was a terrible pause. Tom's eyes filled with tears. He nodded slowly. He suddenly wanted to kiss her. I know, she said, putting her hand on his forearm. Tom did not kiss her. They left their initial topic far behind, talked for quite some time about a variety of genial and forgettable subjects, preferred music, dreams they never had the ability to pursue, movie stars they liked, loved and hated books, their most embarrassing moments. It was pleasant and easy and Tom discovered several things both about himself and about Jacqueline. First and foremost, that he had been terribly lonely for the longest time. In fact, except for his time with Catherine, he could not think of a distinct time when he had not been lonely. It was all the worse because he had not felt it at the time. He had not felt it until the time he was talking so easily to Jacqueline. Actually, they had been Hart, but Hart had been more of an acolyte than an equal, so he was either deferring to Tom or trying to instruct him. While talking with Jacqueline, Tom realized that he really missed Hart and decided to ride to Oxford and invite him up to Hendon. The other discovery that Tom made that afternoon as the sun came down and he hesitated even to get up and turn on the light, so enjoyable was the talk, was that there were non-volatile people in the world. He frowned to himself at the phrase, even as he listened to Jacqueline talk about how terrible she was at sketching, despite her love for it. Non-volatile was a negative phrase, and the quality that she possessed was too important to be described in the negative. She just did not have some secret hidden agenda which caused her to constantly manipulate others. Everyone in his family, for certain, had this trait. Quentin had to score off Tom for reasons that neither were very clear on. Ruth had always had to keep Tom close by to avert some disaster that neither of them could understand. And Reginald, oh, Reginald the obscure, the dancing fog, the greased, darting little fishy, God knew what he was up to most of the time, although Tom reflected it was probably not God who was in charge. Wendy, complain about her marriage, rail against solutions, a web of deceit. Klaus, analyze the Nazis, never take a stand against them. Tom frowned suddenly realizing that it was quite possible, probable, perhaps, that Klaus had been sympathetic to the Nazis, if not, in fact, a Nazi himself, all along. "'You're thinking about something else,' said Jacqueline. Tom frowned. She was not resentful. She had just noticed. "'Sorry,' he said, 
Well, 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 what was it? If it's even more fascinating than me, I should have a right to know what it is. I mean, what on earth could it possibly be? I was thinking that you are not a very complicated person. He laughed and shook his head. All right, that was meant to be a compliment. In comparison to what? You mean not complicated in comparison to what? She just looked at him. All right. He smiled. I'm stalling. I suppose in relation to my family. Hmm, Jacqueline said. She paused, then seemed to gather something within herself. Well, I can't say that I know your family, but I do believe that I am right in saying that, Mr. Spencer, it is probably true that you are quite an uncomplicated person in comparison with your own family. She took a deep breath. I am known for my run-on sentences. They're easier to write than to say. A hand cramp is less nasty than running out of breath halfway through a thought. Huh, grunted Tom, turning the idea over in his mind. That's complicated than my family. That's not hard. No, she said, at least not in my mind. People are either complicated or they are not. Your family is complicated by all accounts. You are not. So you will always be at a loss. Tom smiled, then lowered his head a little. I do believe, he said softly, that the teacher has become the student. Once more, Jacqueline put her hand on his forearm his throat thrumming with beating blood. He put his fingertips lightly on her knuckles, looking away, almost mad with joy. Well, she murmured, it's about time.